Hello everybody, it's Luke again. Uh, we've got Katie Jacobs from the CIPD today. Um, hopefully you're gonna really enjoy the chat. I'll give uh, Katie a second to just tell us a little bit about you, if that's all right. Thank you, Luke. So, yeah, my name is Katie. Um, I currently work at the CIPD. I've worked there since January. And my job at the CIPD is I focus on our senior leaders uh, and building cool. a proposition for them. So basically, I think I have an amazing job because I spend all my time in the market hanging out with HR <laughs> directors, who are basically cool. my favorite people to hang out with. But how I got to this point is my background is actually business journalism. And I was a business journalist for about a decade. And okay. I edited uh, a couple of publications in that time. But the one that obviously stuck with me and kind of made me go native was yeah. I used to edit HR magazine. So I was okay. on HR magazine for about five years. Okay, cool. And during that time, just kind of fell in love with the community. The world of work. And the world of work, because it's so important, because it can make us feel amazing or terrible. So yeah. we should really move it towards amazing <laughs> and uh, stop it being quite so terrible all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I've ended up, um, how I've ended up kind of going fully native, uh, because when I left the sector and went to edit a magazine about something completely different, yeah. I just really missed it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I spent a few years out. You're still writing then, as well, right? We've, seen, oh, we've yeah. seen a few of your pieces that you've uh, So yeah, I have to kind of keep the muscle working, otherwise I'm worried I'll forget how to write. <laughs> yeah. So I write a lot of blogs and opinion. I have many, many opinions, which we obviously I consider very important that everybody needs to hear. Yeah, so good. <laughs> I'm always looking. I'm gonna hit you with a big question yeah. then, which is how does, or what does, sorry, human resources mean as we enter 2020? I'm looking forward to this opinion because it's <laughs> the world is changing quite a bit. Yeah, now I feel like under a huge amount of pressure. <laughs> so, obviously 2020 is brilliant optics, so I think it's fantastic that we're going into 2020 because now we can use that as a kind yeah. of huge future focus point and yeah. be like, where did we think we would be and where are we actually? So in terms of HR, we're actually moving as the CIPD to talk more about the people profession. Okay. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because we want to be inclusive and encompass things such as L&D and OD and okay. HR and to make that kind of an inclusive piece. Okay. Um, and I'm actually seeing a lot of HR directors changing their job titles to be kind of chief people officer yeah. or director of people, head of people and culture, people and yeah. transformation instead. Employee experience, quite popular as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. So it just becomes a, lo a lot more about the whole systemic piece yeah. and a move away. I think people associate HR a lot with um, process. Yeah. And if we're moving to kind of thinking more about principles and guidelines yeah. and the whole kind of if we say employee experience, but also the entire human experience of being in the workplace, yeah. then just broadening it out to be something a little bit wider yeah. um, is quite important. Uh, so as we go into 2020, I genuinely think it's the biggest opportunity that there has ever been for people, leaders, HR leaders, whatever we're calling them, yeah. to really influence impact, influence leaders okay. and impact organisations. Because if you think about the kind of external world now, government and regulators and the general public, they all expect a lot more of organisations yeah. than I think they did in the past. So if you look at yeah. things that come in, like gender pay gap reporting, you could see that as a, oh God, we've got to put some data together and tick a box. Or you yeah. could see that as an opportunity yeah. to talk about kind of gender balance at your board level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the best people see it as the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, so Legislation just yeah. creates consistency though, right? That's the, that's the big challenge, is that something like gender pay gap reporting leaps everybody to a standard. How, it would be interesting to get your thoughts on like, and maybe I'll save this for a set in a minute, <laughs> which is like, how do brands lift the expectation without uh, a regulatory or uh, legal change in the system causing them to 
lift the bar. So I think when you get a legal change in the system, it just lifts the bar as kind of your basic rate for everybody. Yeah, there's so a new standard, So I think it's right? a, a really positive thing because I do think there are some yeah. organisations that would never do anything yeah. without being forced to do it. Yeah. Um, I think for the really good organisations, they see that as an opportunity to go further. So if you look at gender pay gap reporting, the best organisations are the ones that are now really getting serious about their action plans. So it's yeah. not about the number. It's yeah. about explaining how you're going to close that gap. Yeah. And I think actually the way that it's reported is interesting and perhaps yeah, this could be a whole different podcast but not the best <laughs> way to report it because if you're doing things properly systemically in an organisation your gap might get bigger before it gets smaller because you might be bringing in a lot of people at the bottom of your pipeline yeah. and it's a long-term thing to move them up into executive level. Yeah. Um, but if you look at organisations um, that are kind of going the extra mile if we think about things that haven't even come in yet, like ethnicity pay gap reporting some, some organisations see it as an opportunity to get ahead of the curve and to start reporting early, even yeah. though they don't have to do that now. And I think the reason they're doing that is kind of several fold. I think it's because partly to kind of get their ducks in a row around data and transparency and the tools that they're using and disclosure, which is a yeah. massive issue, but also from an employee uh, kind of employer brand perspective, yeah. because people want to work for organisations that are seen to be doing good for society. Yeah. and kind of purpose-driven, and also people want to work for places that they're proud to yeah. be in. Yeah, so yeah. you can kind of get ahead of it a little bit, and it just shows you're taking it seriously. Yeah. So, so that was a really rambling answer no, no, to what no, you it's, asked. No, it's, it's, it's good, it's good. I'm going to let you carry on on the thread of 2020, mm. and then I'm going to come back to I've noted something down to ask you as a okay. follow-on for that one. Okay. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think it's, as we go into 2020, just the door has never been like kind of wider open for people, yeah. professionals to... Kind of take that mythical seat at the table and just be at the top table yeah. with other business leaders yeah um i don't think the opportunity is going to get any better so may as well go for it um and the other thing seeing is kind of moving away from a focus on policy and process to being more cultures and values driven um kind of thinking more about guidelines and frameworks rather yeah. than being slavish about the policies and yeah. the rules and i think one thing that i'm quite pleased to see is moving away from kind of mindless application of best practice because best practice doesn't really exist, because yeah. all practice is context specific. Yeah. So moving away from, oh, what is the best thing to do, and what is everyone else doing, and we should do that. Yeah. And like learning from what others are doing, and yeah. learning what good looks like, but yeah. then really looking at your context and how it can be applied to your context with the resources that you've got available. Um, and our kind of new, we have a new profession map that CIPD launched last year. And at the centre of that is our purpose, which is around championing better work and working lives. But around it is our professional values, which are being evidence-based, outcomes-driven and values-led. So while specialisms kind of evolve and change, that remains the same. And I think that's incredibly positive. Yeah. Um, so I think 2020, very exciting year. So it's a great opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and we should, we should grab it. I'll yeah. stop there. Yeah, I think so much has happened with work and so much is influencing it that... Um, I th was it you that wrote a blog post recently about do or die for HR? Uh, yeah, I might have used that phrase. It sounds really violent when it, you say it. It, it does, <laughs> it does. Um, but in terms of like the next five years being so critical, yeah. because we talk, and I got a few questions for you in mm. a sec about um, uh, the big reports used to talk about 2020 mm. as like the turn of the decade, this new decade where all of these yeah. things are going to be different. I remember seeing so many stats around like, the proportion of millennials in the workplace by 2020 it was like this point of significance and now we're about 30 days away from it um a couple of questions on this what does hr mean in 2020 um and it's, it comes from the the gender the gender pay gap conversation that we had 
and the uh, equality reporting and so on. How, how do organisations get ahead before the legal prompt? Because it feels reactionary still. Mm. Like the, if, if there's a gender pay gap report um, and now there's a, a signal from the legal system or the regulatory system, whatever it might be, for the next thing coming, we're just reacting earlier mm. because we know it's coming. Like how do you actually get ahead of some of that stuff? and lead on some of these things rather than the legal system leading you? Mm. I think one of the things that I think is really important for the profession, um, and I've actually just written another blog on that, so <laughs> that should be going live at some point, um, is the importance of kind of being externally aware and yeah. kind of looking up and out. And yeah. I think it's not just an, a kind of an HR issue, I think it's a, for all professions when people feel too busy yeah. and overwhelmed and stressed out by work, it tends to be like what you do is you kind of hunker down and you're like, I can't look up. I can't yeah. even leave my desk. I can't talk to anybody. I just yeah. need to get this done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's times where that might be relevant and that might need to be what you do. But I think if you don't get out of your organisation yeah. and your sector and your system, yeah. then that's when you miss stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I think kind of in terms of getting ahead of the game, just having what um, the academic Himanir Ibarra calls outside and thinking about what is outside your yeah. immediate organization yeah. your immediate networks and being very i guess some um, deliberate yeah. about how you extend that yeah. so whether that's thinking about what you read and yeah. widening that out so you're not just always reading stuff that you agree with yeah and finding other stuff and that you're reading proper kind of strategic management journals yeah um and a range of newspapers and a range of kind of current affairs magazines and that kind of thing and also where you show up so who are you networking with yeah. And can you kind of extend that more deliberately to network with groups that you might not otherwise? Yeah. And I think that is kind of how you get a sense a lot of the time of yeah. the stuff that is coming. Yeah. Because then you kind of take a, I feel like you're always taking a temperature check yeah. of what's going on um, yeah. around it's you. Part, part of it, the, the, some of the challenge that I think that the industry faces is the being ahead of what is coming mm. rather than determining the direction. Um, so uh, I noted something down, which is how and where do HR leaders learn? Because a lot of the movement that you say from policy and process to values driven and brand and essentially experience of work, um, you don't learn from the same sources by which you became a HR professional, like the legal system and employment mm. law and policy and all of those things, you're looking at experience design and how do you consider brand and how do you consider messaging and how do you consider physical environment? They are really different skills that I think we're acknowledging are required from 2020 mm. or, or now. Where do they learn that stuff? So I think a lot of it, the stuff that you're talking about does come from bits that I would think are traditional HR, so the kind of organisational psychology, yeah. organisational behaviour and occupational Motivation, psychology right, and really of... understanding what it is that makes people tick. Yeah. And I think that that has always been a part yeah. of the profession and perhaps it's becoming more important. Yeah. I also think that um, kind of org design and development as yeah. a core skill that perhaps I do know from like some leaders I work with that that's something that they find quite difficult to find in people. Yeah. So kind of how can we develop people to think about the kind of whole system of an organisation yeah. and how that works. I kind of call it whole system thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we have to kind of think about where, what a profession is and how you get into a profession because I think this might be 
heresy to say in the CIPD. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> that you could come from a like you don't you could come and make a real really great impact in HR yeah. and not have started in HR. Yeah. And sometimes it can be really helpful to have had a kind of business operations or to yeah. have run something or to yeah. have worked on the floor and to really understand. Yeah, we what see it's a like. big transition from marketing to HR at the mm. moment because. Um, for me, uh, HR and marketing role is quite consistent in the modern world of like strategic mm. HR in terms of you're trying to build an emotional connection to the brand and the people that people spend time with, which is not too dissimilar to where you've just come from with the hospitality conversation in which mm. service-orientated businesses have done this for years in terms of connection and service and how they consider what experiences look like. Um, yeah, it's an interesting challenge, eh? So I think there's a huge kind of synergy between HR and marketing. Yeah. And I know a few HR directors um, or people directors that have marketing within their portfolio. Yeah. So it's kind of this understanding that you you can't separate customer and yeah. employee experience. Yeah. And that kind of people smell BS and that, yeah, yeah. you know, if you're saying one thing about yeah. your brand over here to your customers, that yeah. the employees are experiencing something totally different, then, then the customers are probably going to going to yeah. realise that. So yeah. I think there's like really enormous synergies. And um, yeah, I was, as you alluded to, I was um, chairing something um, around HR and hospitality industry this morning. And a lot of what they're doing in those industries is linking those net promoter scores. So yeah, we see it a lot. Score, yeah, and customer Employee pitch. engagement, yeah. investment is to improve uh, NPS, ultimately, or CSAT yeah. scores. Um, yeah, I think your point is right around brand. Like I often see that marketing create somewhat of a veneer if the brand's not built from the inside out. Yeah. I.e. if people don't live it, you fall down. For me, brand is like, how do you look, what do you say, and how do you act? And looking is easy to manipulate, both as a marketer and as a HR professional. What you say is also easy to manipulate because you have a comms professional or a marketing person or a PR person that helps it, but how you act is often where it falls down, both in the inside of an organisation and the outside of an organisation. Yeah, and that's why everything should be so underpinned by the kind of values and behaviours. Yeah, yeah. And that's where, that's genuinely where I think the value that HR needs to, or people profession, that's the value that they need to bring. Yeah. Is that really deep understanding of that. Yeah. And that also asking difficult questions. Sometimes you have to be the one kind of asking the difficult questions and challenging about is that really the way that we should be behaving? Yeah. That might make us profit in the short term, but in the long term, is it sustainable? What impact is it going to have on our employees? What impact is that going to have on the communities in which we operate? Yeah. And uh, just not doing something like you can you can do a lot of things doesn't necessarily mean you should do them yeah and I think that the people profession really needs to kind of step up into that role of being I guess an ethical challenger and an ethical champion and always thinking bringing it back to the behaviors and the culture and that can be quite a difficult place to be because it does mean that sometimes you might be the kind of last line of defense yeah and sometimes it means you have to be I mean I remember I did a big interview or a big um, feature about corporate governance um, a few years ago and a quote that stuck with me from one of the HRDs I interviewed was, you know, you have to have enough money in the bank really to be able to walk away at any time Yeah. and say this is, that's my line Yeah. and it's been crossed so it's time for me to go. Yeah, 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 true, very true. Off script question now, I apologise. Oh my God. Um, how does HR make sure that HR changes HR when you look at the future of work rather than work changes HR? And what I mean by that is there's so much external influence and opinion about what HR needs to be now. But the people in it are often the 
best people to know the answer. We would talk about that in an organisation and why we run an employee engagement survey or why we ask for employee ideas is because the people closest to the problem often have the best way out of the problem. There is a fear in the do or die statement that I mentioned in terms of your blog that HR can't find their way out of it. Um, but I think that they should or are well-placed to be the ones to find their way out of it and HR kind of move HR on. How, how do you think they go about solving what feels like such a significant problem and take info and insight from the external factors to move it on rather than let it be done hit an inflection yeah. point, basically? And there's so many companies in the world, right, that have been almost blind to something, get to an inflection point, and then it's just gone, and it's mm. changed. And all of a sudden, something is so drastically different, but it's a point in history, and it's remembered for what it was, and it's not in control of where it's going anymore. Mm. So I think a lot of it comes down to kind of courage and bravery, because I think that a lot of, and I don't think this is just true of HR, but I guess we're talking about HR. Oh, it's so leadership, it. right, ultimately. Yeah, but it's um, thinking about... So in order to move forward, you have to let go of stuff yeah. that makes you that you've done in the past, and often that's the stuff that makes you really comfortable. Yeah. Because it is your comfort zone. Yeah. So if we're talking about like the kind of people profession, that might be a lot of the kind of more quote unquote kind of administrative or operational yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah that yeah. could ultimately become automated. Yeah. But if you don't kind of take control of that. Yeah. And think about, okay, where can we bring in efficiency? Where is efficiency the right thing to do? Where do we need to kind of keep the human? Yeah. And you're not leading those conversations, then it will be done yeah. to you. Yeah. But in order to kind of acknowledge that, you have to realise that it's probably going to happen. <laughs> it yeah. is going to happen. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's no use kind of grabbing onto it and being like, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm never <laughs> giving this up. And this, yeah, is, yeah. this is what I do. And this is what makes me feel useful. And yeah. I think that's how we slip into kind of as anybody in a workplace, doing the stuff that makes us comfortable and is often the yeah. stuff that makes us busy. I mean, when I when yeah. I start a new job and I don't know what I'm doing, yeah. I often do the easiest thing, but it takes quite a lot of time. So yeah. when I was an editor, if I started and I wasn't feeling particularly confident, I'd be like, I'll write a new story. Yeah. So I know how to write a new story. Um, and yeah. then I feel like I'm adding value because then there is a new story that they wouldn't have otherwise been. Yeah. But that isn't ultimately as an editor how you add value yeah, yeah, yeah. but it made me feel safe yes so yeah, i think completely. it's um a little bit of kind of courage and stepping up yeah. to be prepared to let go of the non-value add yeah and then to shape what you think the yeah. value add is yeah um and i think as well as kind of this bravery i guess it's another factor of bravery it's um so if you think about the kind of changing expectations um of excos and of boards i was having a conversation with a group hr director from a FTSE 100 yesterday and he was saying that in his experience in the last few years, the exco and the board now expect so much more from him and his team yeah. in terms of being a, being a real kind of commercial yeah. driver yeah. for the business, whereas before it would have been, you know, he was supporting yeah. the business to do what the business needed to do to deliver its strategy. Yeah. And that was so more about, right, how do we set up a people strategy that then makes that business strategy happen, yeah. what commercial value are you adding? Yeah. Um, and when you get into any kind of leadership position, it's all about what you add beyond your function. Yeah. So your functional expertise is kind of a given, yeah. but then what do you do beyond that? Yeah. And I think in order to for anybody to move forward, you have to just let go and yeah, delegate yeah, yeah. or automate yeah. of a lot of the stuff. But I think for a lot of people, it's, it's just scary because I guess it's like jumping into the unknown a bit. Yeah, I do not know if that answers your question. No, I think I think it I think it does. 
I think it does. It's prompted another one, which is sending me further off script. So you're happy for me to carry <laughs> I'm on. Very comfortable. <laughs> cool. Um, so I, the commerciality of HR, so the person that you talk of, FTSE 100 business, asking for or demanding to an extent more from the department and the commerciality of the organ uh, from from the function. Um, if we talk about like uh, safety zone on the economic side for HR often seems to sit around saving money mm. rather than making more money or enhancing productivity. Do, do you think that there's a challenge in the like economic understanding of value that HR brings at the moment? And it would be really interesting to just get your thoughts on how you can be more commercial when the number sign is generally pointing downwards in the way in which people have understood the function so far. So I think on a kind of really big systemic let's reshape capitalism issue, which uh, we can do another time, <laughs> I yeah. very strongly about what we value yeah. um, as, a, as a society and as yeah. a business system. Um, I think that the future for HR and the people profession has to be moving from being seen as a cost centre to a value driver. Yeah. Um, that sounds like quite a blithe statement. I don't no, really know. No, no, that no, either, I, I get it. I, mean. I definitely get it, yeah. Um, in terms of commerciality, some, I mean, efficiency is you know is king and that is what people what yeah. business leaders want i think we've probably a lot of organizations have probably got to the most efficient they're ever going to get to i don't think there is much more prices, they can yeah. get rid of i mean and you um can automate i was with somebody earlier who's they've automated um four um fts worth of hr admin mm -hmm. but it, they didn't get rid of four people they moved them into right, other yeah. bits yeah. or thought about where do we need the value and that for them was around uh analytics yeah. capability yeah. um and kind of just more, just moving people up a value chain a little bit. Yeah. Um, I remember commissioning a piece when I was at HR magazine about HR leaders who kind of step outside their comfort zone and become um, drivers of value by mm -hmm. launching commercial products. Yeah. So I've seen that and that's actually growing. I can think of quite a few examples. It's a lady from, uh, is it the energy company? She created her own product in-house, right? Yeah, so there's lots of, like, so um, one... Is it Over Energy? One, oh, yeah, Over, so to Kim. Yeah. yeah, so they've launched Just Three Things. Yeah. Um, I'll give a name check to Andy Dodman from uh, now at Leeds City Council, but was at Sheffield University. And they developed, they had such a great well-being programme that then businesses, other Span started out, asking right? them, yeah. how have you been, to, how have you done this? How have yeah, you, so... Yeah. They launched a business that is now its own business. Cool. That originally was off the side of the university and was giving yeah. value back to the university. Yeah. Now I think it's spun off into its own thing. Cool. Um, other examples: when Karen Bevan was at River Island, she set up, had like conceived, launched, and ran their personal styling service because okay. she saw an opportunity in the market there. Cool. She was their HR director. Yeah. So yeah. there are loads of examples yeah. of HR people who can who have really innovative ideas and then they've just kind of got the get up and go yeah. and the commercial savvy. Yeah. to be able to make it happen yeah. and the skills or they're happy to teach themselves yeah. how to then run that as a PL, yeah. how to make it commercially successful. And I actually think as a profession, it's really well placed for that because I can't think of many others where you see right across the organisation yeah. and you see every little bit of it yeah. and everything that's happening. Yeah. So you can see opportunities, perhaps yeah. more than some other people yeah. other, can't. Other... Uh, functions within an organisation are quite vertical, mm. right? Whereas HR is quite horizontal in yeah. the way in which you would see the organisation. Um, and I'll jump back to a point you said earlier about safety, so and feeling safe um, to to being in an environment in which sort of people talk about psychological safety quite often, quite a lot at a leadership level. 
um, taking the seat at the table is indicative that it doesn't exist fully at the moment, which creates a uh, maybe an absence of psychological safety in the way in which you're perceived and fear or risk may be one of the emotions in which you feel. How, how, does, how does that get overcome if there isn't this kind of magical seat at the table yet so that you can be brave enough to make some of the changes that are needed so that you're in position to control your destiny rather than have it happen to you? So I think a lot of the conversations that I have around um, the kind of future of the profession and where it's going, and I'm having quite a lot of them at the moment because we're scoping a piece of work for next year around it, and the word that comes up a lot is confidence. And yeah. HR, this is um, leaders saying, yeah. or people leaders yeah, saying yeah. HR needs to be more confident. Yeah. And we need to have the confidence to challenge, and we also need to have the kind of confidence in ourselves. Completely, yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of it comes from that. And when I... <laughs> don't want to go down the kind of seat at the table rabbit hole because I feel that yeah, people are like sick no, of it as no, a discussion. But I think that it is, it is there. And if you're adding value yeah. and you're able to influence and operate and you're at, at that very senior level and you're evidencing it with, yeah. kind of with impact and with value, then it's just there. Yeah. you just got to kind of step up and take it. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than kind of not doing that just because you feel a little bit like you've got imposter syndrome. Yeah. Because yeah, everybody's indeed. got imposter syndrome. Yeah. I think... Yeah, um, I would yeah. completely agree. Yeah, I don't yeah. think there's anybody who's like, I 100% deserve to be. Yeah. I mean, there probably are, the and that's why there are so many like psychopaths and CEOs. But, <laughs> yeah, true. Um, but I think everybody kind of has that yeah. moment of, oh, God, do Should I even I be, know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I'm having yeah. that right now. I'm like, what are you saying? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. You're good. No, this is interesting. I'm sorry I've gone so far from... Any questions that I gave you a hint that I might ask you, um, but that was really interesting. Um, I'm going to jump back to script now, um, which is um, talking about some of the like influencing factors and what I mentioned earlier about like uh, all of the research pieces that I used to talk uh, to, to read as I was starting my about 2020 being the expectation of all of these magical things that were going to happen. It'd be really good to get a sense of what you think are the macro factors that are influencing work as we know it today. Um, and which of those present both the biggest opportunity for employees because I think there's a power shift starting to happen. We saw it from brands to consumers in the marketing world and we're now seeing employees have a great deal more power as the labour market's tight and there's a skills gap of highly qualified knowledge workers and those kind of things and Brexit's going to create in hospitality a challenge over the workforce. Like the employee has some power on some of these macro factors. And then how do you think some of the other macro factors are impl inf influencing um, and creating opportunities for the employer? Yeah. So um, first, I'd just like to say that I think that there is a, if we talk about power shifting to the employee, yeah, it's true in like the industries in which like we work, we're knowledge workers, yeah. but there is such a polarisation of the labour market yeah. that actually for a lot of people, they're losing power. Yeah. So I'm not that comfortable with that as a generalisation because okay. I think yeah. there's, if you look at kind of, gig workers and things like Uber and delivery, there are just so many examples of people like yeah. losing rights and not yeah. feeling like they have the right to ask for anything whatsoever. So I think there's this enormous kind of polarisation in the labour market and we talk about our, our labour market being this hourglass where you've got people that are literally stuck at the bottom yeah. and then everybody else having a lovely time at the top. Yeah. So just a caveat with that. Yeah. Um, so I think there's like just loads of things that are, yeah. <laughs> that are driving change. Um, I think 
kind of the kind of political situation as a starter for 10. Obviously, anything that happens, uh, I don't know if you're listening to this after the general election, so who knows? <laughs> who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, but any, anything could impact regulation. But I yeah. think if we're thinking about political situation, I think it's interesting to think about it in terms of how polarised societies become mm-hmm. and people feeling this kind of us and them. Yeah. Yeah, kind of culture yeah. i'm not saying that that is like the people professions problem to solve but i think it's something to think about yeah. because you've got groups of people feeling disempowered and disenfranchised it and not able commitment right yeah it does Ultimately, and it, which is yeah. yeah and organizations i think are communities yeah and they're part they're part of communities because they employ people yeah. and they are communities in themselves yeah so they should be kind of safe spaces for yeah. people to be able to be speak up and be yeah. themselves um so i think that's an interesting driver I think um, kind of the economic growth or lack thereof is obviously going to drive stuff. Yeah. And for this profession particularly, kind of dangerous, I guess, because when stuff slows, number one, people just don't want to pull the trigger on anything. Yeah. Um, and number two, it's people stuff that often gets cut when at the very time where it makes sense to invest in it. So you see like training and development budgets yeah. shrink uh, yeah. when they shouldn't be. Um, I think uh, kind of technological change and automation and AI and all the associated risks and opportunities that come from that. Um, and I think although a lot of jobs are getting kind of augmented and created following the introduction of new technology, probably more of them are being eliminated. Really, the people profession needs to be kind of front and centre and at the middle of that tech implementation because yeah. it really does lead to lots of questions about reskilling yeah. and redeploying people. Yeah. Because the easiest thing would be to just put some technology in and then, you know, load of people out of work. But yeah. I think I said earlier about asking the challenging questions. Like, yeah. Is it worth it if you're suddenly going to raise unemployment in yeah. your region in such an enormous way? Like how just kind of thinking about that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I think some big social, um, social issues as well. So uh, stuff um, around kind of our ageing workforce. Yeah. Uh, I did bring some stats. So like almost a, yeah, almost a third of I people it, in the UK workforce are now age over 50 and by... 2030 the number of people in the UK aged 65 and over will increase by 50% so unless we kind of harness that aging workforce and think about how we kind of recruit and train and retain older workers you're going to end up with massive skills shortages yeah. and often there's a lot of discrimination against older people yeah. but there are a lot more older people now than there are going to be younger people yeah. coming through yeah. so we need to deal with that and I think like even massive massive issues like kind of climate change and thinking yeah. about that how how that impacts how people are feeling and yeah. to shamelessly steal a phrase I heard somebody use the other day, which I really liked, was kind of talking about the birth of the woke place and people really caring yeah. about that and feeling that they want their employers to do more about it. Yeah. So how are you dealing with it if your employees are asking, I want a day off to go on the climate strike? Yeah. Or what are we doing around sustainability? Yeah. Because ultimately, I think organisations that don't address those kind of issues are probably going to end up losing talent. Yeah. Or at least the talent that has the kind of luxury to go yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so there's loads and loads of stuff, and I actually, sorry, I gave a keynote on this the other day, so I could have bought that and just read it out. But, <laughs> but there's, um, yeah, just so many external factors, and I think it reflects to what I was saying yeah. earlier about really looking up and out and identifying what those factors are and doing an yeah. analysis about what they mean for your organisation because they bring a lot of risks, but they also bring loads of opportunity. Yeah. And and which of them do you think create a like a leapfrog opportunity or a springboard opportunity for the employee or the employer or both? So I think technology is probably the most obvious one. And I think one of the questions that you sent me earlier was about what can we learn from small organisations yeah. and startups, but obviously they don't, they have the luxury of no legacy whatsoever. Yeah. So obviously 
you don't you don't have a really terrible legacy system yeah or an hr system where you're having to somebody used the phrase to me at breakfast the other day we have to put coal in it every morning which <laughs> i'm not going to say what the system was um but people, like if you don't have that yeah. then you can obviously move to Quicker. kind of um more kind of app enabled yeah ones yeah um and i think there was kind of a move when I first started writing about this area, everyone was thinking about, right, how do we just put in one massive system? How yeah. do we put everything on Workday? Other other forms of technology are available. Um, <laughs> but now, kind of, I think there's kind of a return to people thinking about, like, how do we stitch something together that works for us yes. and use lots of little things yeah. that are appropriate for our context? Yeah. And I think if without the kind of, if you've got the luxury of not having as much legacy, yeah. then you're able to kind of leapfrog over that and that's going to naturally lead to a better employee experience. Yeah, I think an interesting observation that we make quite often is that um, technology seems to be a bit of a blessing and sometimes a curse for organisations in which it's it can very quickly become really confused and technology can be, well, it's all about code and noughts and ones and how does how do we actually apply technology to our organisation and people try to solve for the how, like how do we use and introduce this technology or how do we build this system rather than lead with their problem and requirement. I don't know if you've done any work on this space or have any perspective around how people are best to get the most from technology because they don't have to build it, right? They're, yeah. not, they're not there to build, they're there to solve their problems. Yeah, and I think one of the examples that I heard somebody use the other day was like, why are we teaching everybody to code? <coughs> like, not everybody needs to know how to yeah. how to code. Yeah. Like, it's yeah, not going to be useful to yeah. just make everybody know how to do that. And I think within this profession as well, like maybe people get a little bit worried about, oh, I have to understand what's in the black box. And you don't yeah. really have to understand what's in the black box. You just have to understand what the possibilities of yes. using it are yeah. um, and also the kind of questions that you should be asking around kind of what the bias inherent in it might be and all of those other yeah. kind of challenging questions. Um, so one of the things that we talk a lot about is evidence-based yeah. HR and I think just using a yeah. kind of evidence-based mindset to any kind of problem. So framing what is the problem that we are trying to solve rather yeah. than being a solution in search of a problem, which I think is a lot yeah. of technology. And I think as a profession, uh, I haven't actually worked in that many others, so I assume others are just as bad. That you go out and you're like, oh my God, it's so shiny and beautiful, and look at how amazing it is. We yeah. should have it, let's have it. Yeah. Um, but why do you want it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so What's yeah, just very much like starting with the problem. Yeah. Um, and it might not be the problem that you think is the problem. Like often when you strip it back, yeah. it's a totally different problem and actually a much simpler one yeah. that might be easier and cheaper to solve yeah. rather than putting in a whole new system. Yeah, I would completely agree. Um, yeah, leading with the problem and not the surface level issue, right? Is very often you see people wanting to buy a solution because it solves this what is a perceived issue rather than going down that little bit deeper. Um, you got any advice for people? Because often we see people wanting the solution and not going in search of a means to solve their problem. Have you seen anyone doing it really well? So or the skills that help you yeah. to do it well. So I think look at the work. So um, we've got a lot of resources around evidence-based decision-making yeah. um, on available on our website, which we use, <laughs> but also um, all the work that Rob Breen has done around what that yeah. looks like. And I think evidence-based HR, I wrote an article about it, a long one, like in 2015, I think. Yeah. Um, and the thing that always sticks with me, because obviously I remember everything about every article I've ever written, <laughs> but... Um, is that when we talk about evidence-based stuff, it's so easy to think that, oh, that's data, that's just data. And a lot of the um, big consultancies have co-opted it to mean that, because it's yeah. about selling for them. 
but actually there are four sources of available evidence and just one of those is data and other things are like your lived experience social proof yeah and other things to look for kind of academic research yeah. so um, I think just kind of looking at what those kind of four available sources of evidence are and also I think there are six kind of a six-step process to how you apply it yeah and it might be like so I think what's interesting about that is the data might be telling you one thing but your lived experience of having tried something a hundred times yeah. might tell you something completely different yeah it doesn't mean that that's not right yeah yeah um, so I'm really interested because I had listened to a, um, a, a podcast that it's Rob Breen right for Brina. is it a uh, Brina is he at London University yeah, yeah? Um, yeah, Queen Mary. Yes. Yeah. So I he was on Bruce Daisley's podcast and he um, spoke about the basis for investment being um, a performance-orientated investment or a moral investment for HR. Given what you said about the FTSE 100 commercial HRD earlier being performance-orientated in their investment, how much do you think that that skews the purchase behaviour and the intent of the HR profession around um, moral investment around people's mental health and physical health and around employee engagement that doesn't have necessarily always the strongest causation argument um, to improve business performance? Yeah, because I think Rob always says that, you know, sometimes we should stop here well, you know he says I know he says that you should stop talking yeah. about a business case because sometimes it is just the right thing to the do right, and why yeah. wouldn't you want to do the right thing yeah um, and I think most people professionals I genuinely believe they want to do the right thing and I yeah. think what we're what I'm what I've noticed is kind of, so if you look back to kind of the history of the profession it started as a very kind of welfare focused profession a hundred yeah. years ago and it was all about welfare yeah and then it, I think it became incredibly commercial yeah and business focused and it was all about what we need to do for the business yep. and I feel now we're rowing back slightly to sit somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. and that we need to be focused on performance and we need to be focused on productivity but also people and yep. how we do that in a human and compassionate way. Yeah. Um, I ran something the other day about kind of org design and the future of work and how technology might change that and the kind of word that came out the most for me was empathy. People were just talking about we need leaders to be empathetic and we mm -hmm. need to be empathetic when we're thinking about change. Yeah. Um, and I think just kind of bringing that back into it because it doesn't mean you can't be commercial and ultimately, you know, organisations need to be successful and they need to make money in order to employ people. Yeah. You could be the most compassionate organisation in the world, but if you're not making any money, <laughs> you, you can't give anybody longer. any jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we need to yeah. be sustainable. Yeah. Um, and at a practical level, though, how do people manage that tension? with difficulty I think there's a lot of mental health issues among HR professionals I think like it's a really really stressful yeah. job and something that I've had quite a few people contact me about lately is I think lack HR of resilience they, they get it on both rep, sides right? yeah. yeah and I think most people are in it because they genuinely care and they want yeah. to they want to make a difference and they want to do the right thing yeah um, so we're seeing some examples of people putting in kind of counselling services for their HR departments yeah um, and I think we often talk about kind of HR as a function being very cobbler's children. So they buy training for everyone else and then they do zero training themselves. And I think yeah. it's quite similar for well-being. Yeah. They worry about everyone else's well-being and they don't focus on their own well-being. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really up to the role of the, the function head and the leader yeah. to think about what is the impact on my people because it is a stressful job if you're the one managing change as well. Yeah. Yeah, got to kind of take a step back and think about you yeah and what that's doing to you and kind of your sense of self and yeah. your well-being yeah yeah okay cool um next question is just around um so 
five years ago there were loads of predictions out there around data points of digitization of HR and use of data analytics and number of millennials in the workforce. Um, which, which of those trends do you think HR has ridden well and should be proud of and which ones do you think that they're struggling with and maybe lagging behind a little bit on? So I think five years ago we were all talking about big data and now we're still talking about big data <laughs> yeah. um, and a lot of people are talking about they're doing are we doing analytics and they're not really they're doing reporting yeah so I think there is a real kind of just a huge difference yeah. uh, they're different like a huge spectrum yeah. of stuff going on that is predictive and exciting yeah uh, and stuff that is kind of business as usual reporting but being called something else yeah um I think we've probably moved to most large organisations will have deployed some form of massive um, kind of HRIS yep. system. So a lot of people, I think, and I'm just talking large organisations here because I know not everyone can, can afford yep. that kind of stuff, but will yep. have moved to self-serve. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of digitisation yep. has kind of has happened in a lot of um, kind of a lot of the bigger organisations. I think the foundation of the HR tech stack is digitized yeah i would agree with that but i don't the, know if about the rest of it is but yeah well, i think there's a long a long way a long way to go but the foundations are there i think in yeah. most places but then there's still issues of kind of rubbish in rubbish out that you're yeah no single source of truth and that th kind of stuff i think the the the, the hris piece the like hcm piece of the core system has actually done much more in terms of um data structures and uh, some of the functional data sets that enriches the rest of the analytics piece. So I think there's been a big build happen from a technology standpoint that enables the rest of it to be done better because a workday implementation or any other <laughs> HR system... Other systems there, are available. Um, they do exist. But I think what a lot of that has forced people to do in the implementation structure and processes really kind of think through some of those things. How do they work mm. at a functional level to give a base functionality that then enables all of this other stuff to work much, 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 much better, it yeah. seems. And then in terms of taking that further, I think there's a, like, I hear a lot that, oh, no, we don't have the kind of analytics capability within yeah. HR. Oh, where do we get this? And a lot of people are just now hiring or bringing statisticians or data scientists into their function. Yeah. I think that's fine. Why do they need to come from HR? You could yeah. bring somebody in who really, really understands that as a topic, yeah. but also is intrinsically motivated to want to make people's working lives better. Yeah. And you could have... Yeah, just that's Equally, like a match made in heaven. I don't think you need them necessarily in the function, but mm. you need them available to you. Yeah. And you need to be clear on what the problem is, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, go on, sorry. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Because like, I like, obviously was away for a few years and then I came back and I just don't think that much has shifted yeah. dramatically. Like I said earlier, I think what has shifted is the context yeah. and a lot of the regulation, which then provides a platform to influence more effectively and to have impact and to kind yeah. of move yourself upwards. Um, I do think among the people that, that I know, um, which perhaps is self-selecting, because I often found that the people who self-select to, to interact yeah. externally maybe are slightly more progressive, um, that they have moved to being far more principles-based, um, principles-led, um, less obsessed with best practice, mm -hmm. and really trying to be evidence-based, which I think is incredibly positive. Yeah. And you hear like, very rarely now when I talk to really senior practitioners, yeah. hear them talk about, you know, process yeah and it's so much like culture it's all about culture yeah it's all they want to talk about kind of culture diversity yeah values that that is where they see the va like the value yeah. that they're bringing yeah um probably because they've done all the build 
because obviously you do need. Like, I, I don't believe you can get rid of. I don't believe you can get rid of process because I think. Yeah. Well, you have to be the most mature organisation in the world to get rid of process because I think that like take performance management. If you get rid of that and then people just don't have any performance conversations or ever talk about it, yeah. then like why like you've just really, really damaged kind of the organization. It depends so. what the purpose of the process yeah. is for me. If if like performance management has got a little bit lost in the fact that it's typically tied to performance calibration and bonus mm. uh, and the process is more around remuneration than it is about personal development mm. or objective assessment. So it depends on the purpose of what the process is, right? Yeah, but you um, should, I think you still need to, I think you have to get to a point where the organisation is so mature, the culture is so embedded and the managers are so well, like so people focused to ever get to a point where you can stop mandating the need to have a performance conversation that is about development or is about where somebody wants to get to or is about goal setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you, I think you need kind of a structure and, yeah. a, and a framework and then you need to work within that and then the job of HR is to enable managers to kind of see the shades of, like work within the shades of grey yeah. and work within that context. But you, it's like innovation, it's like if you just chuck people in a room and like, oh, be innovative, you need a framework for innovation. Otherwise, yeah, like just nothing happens. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I get it, I get it. Um, the focus is shifting to culture um, so one of the, one of the big things that inspired me to start Mo was um, I saw a massive gap between what I was able to fuel marketing directors with in terms of insight around um, b- behavior essentially. So um, the marketing profession was mostly built on like demographic profiling. I feel like HR's got much better at reporting on static data points or functional data around like workforce makeup and um, people by division and some of those things that HR has allowed them to do. One of the big gaps I saw that even you know four or five years ago when this started was um, marketers has only just got to the point in which they could understand consumer behaviour. So how were they interacting? What were they actually? How were, what were they doing? Rather than who were they? Um, it creates a massive demand if HR are going to shift to be culture focused in the data requirement. Um, but it feels like in the main, the, the system structure isn't there in terms of digital transformation to create the data points to provide the insight around behavior yet. How, how do they support the evidence base with data as one stream and the challenge over uh, additional forms of evidence that we talked about earlier, which is seeing things often because scale creates the ability to reduce, it inhibits the ability to observe behavior mm. at that level of scale across the various parts of the organization. So the data acts as your proxy, right, mm. to your observations. How, how do they manage that? Like, how can that be, how can an, an evidence base and a level of commerciality and a focus and championing of culture? be supported with a gap of technology and systems and insight? I think it's a really big challenge, I think. So, maybe left field, but hopefully not that left field. So we've been doing quite a lot of work um, at the moment looking at the new corporate governance code and the new corporate governance code requires PLCs to report on um, employee voice, um, how you're capturing employee voice and kind of measure, I guess, measurement, monitoring, assessment of, of culture. Yeah. So we've been doing quite a lot of work around that. I've run a couple of um, roundtables and had a lot of conversations with CHROs around it. Um, and 
I think the data and the not having access to data is a is a kind of a big issue. Yeah. Um, but any data has to be. The point is to come up with a coherent narrative. Yeah. That gives a holistic picture of what your culture looks like, and I don't think that's ever going to be able to be like here are some numbers. You just need a bunch <laughs> of different numbers. Yeah, yeah. Plus narrative. Yeah. Plus anecdotal. Yeah. So the kind of stuff that people were doing that was working quite effectively, or was starting to work effectively, was if they've got NEDs responsible for employee voice, then mm-hmm. kind of sending all of the NEDs out around the business to... As a NED, you mean non-executive? Oh, sorry, non-executive yeah, director. Yeah. Just to make sure, sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> the other type. Um, to Where you just were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That <laughs> lovely club in London. Um, so to go out and spend time in different business units. Yeah. Um, so whether that's via doing focus groups or just even just walking around yeah. and kind of feeling the culture, yeah. which, um, which I know is not yeah, <laughs> a particular yeah. form of um, really co- consistent evidence. So doing that kind of thing, um, kind of transparency um, on the rise. So things like um, ethical hotlines mm-hmm. that you can people can ring anonymously, yeah. uh, which is not that new, but one organisation then publishes all of the calls okay. that have been made. Wow. So obviously anonymised. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah but publishes them all to the rest of the organisation and says, right, this is what was reported and this is the action that we took on it. Okay, So that kind of thing as a yeah, data yeah. point to yeah. see what are the things that are being reported in a lot of organisations' health and safety as a massive data point, especially if you're working in yeah. any kind of plants, yeah. plants, engineering, construction, um, agriculture, anything like that. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. And um, kind of bringing together of employee groups that almost act as, I don't want to say shadow board committees, but almost. Yeah, yeah. So they're debating like strategic business issues mm-hmm. and giving feedback and then feeding that back into the board mm. to kind of get that mirror on yeah. and feedback on stuff. Yeah. Um, so there are so many kind of different things that people are looking at yeah. that um, are kind of quite creative. I think the thing that everybody is struggling with is, you know, that something might be buried really deep and then something terrible happens. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some kind of, you know, corporate scandal. So how can you get to a point where that's never going to happen? Yeah. Um, and I think so much of it is leadership behaviour and the kind of tone from the top and yeah. what is what is deemed acceptable and non-acceptable. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think this kind of ethical and like I really like the ethical hotline and publishing all of that. It's kind of like kind the of, mirror yeah. image to the Zappos culture book. Yeah. Like the good and the, the bad. The good and the bad. Well, acknowledging the bad. <laughs> yeah. Because there's, you know, yeah. no point pretending everything is amazing. Yeah, 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 completely. Um, so, so it's, also, it's a very rambling way of saying, using multiple data points to, <laughs> and it's hard. to build a picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, no, that's cool. But that's I, I think a lot of culture has to be, I think you are, is dealing with in, intangibles. And I think yeah. in terms of what you asked me earlier about what is value and what do we value, some things that we value have to be intangible and we shouldn't be trying to make them yeah. more tangible. That's kind of my viewpoint. We have to accept yeah. that they're not, you know, you can't numerically say, yeah. our culture is a five out of 10. Sorry. Yeah. We do it with employee engagement then, <laughs> just saying. <sighs> Don't get me on. To <laughs> <laughs> not that that's a good thing necessarily. Um, cool. Next question for you uh, is, um, Large organisations um, that tend to change quite slowly um, and culture change in a big organisation is hard and often is deemed to fail. Um, what do you think that they could learn from 
modern people practices um, like those that were shared by Monzo on our last podcast around like agile methodologies and how you can isolate, experiment uh, and look to move metrics where you've got data available. Mm. So I think, like I said earlier, I feel like sometimes a bit unfair on really large organisations yeah. that have like so many years of legacy and yeah. systems to contend yeah. with and lots of large organisations are doing some really great and innovative innovative things. I think we can be a little bit like obsessed with, oh my God, this startup is, is doing this thing, but it's yeah. kind of, I'm not say easy to do, but if there's, if you've got 20 people, it's a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> and they're in one space. Yeah. It's a lot easier to experiment and to make something happen and create change yeah. than it is if you've got 100,000 people in 37 countries. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of context specific thing um, is, and I judge quite a, like I have judged in my career quite a lot of um, kind of industry awards and I always yeah. think it's really interesting because you see stuff from small organisations and you think, oh, it's just brilliant and it is always brilliant yeah. stuff that they're doing. But when I kind of put my being annoying about contacts hat on, I'm like, but how hard is that to yeah. do? Yeah. Um, so not to say there's like not loads of kind of lessons there to be to be learned because there's lots of things that I know large organisations are. I think the experimenting thing is 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 difficult, yeah. but a lot of them are kind of trying to use agile methodologies. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we can say they're being truly agile. And when we use, I think like bugbear of mine is people often we always use agile to just mean oh we're going to move a bit faster rather than the actual the kind methodology, of like, the yeah, methodology approach, of yeah. doing it yeah. but um, a lot of big organizations i know are starting to work in those kind of project based multidisciplinary yeah. teams that converge and then disperse yeah so i think that has definitely come out of smaller organizations you're seeing that going yeah. into larger ones i also think you're seeing larger ones think about the kind of ecosystem a lot more so the ecosystem in which they operate so it's probably maybe not appropriate for them to do that themselves, but who can they partner with to yeah. do that through? So kind of via things like incubators yeah. um, and also organisations kind of buying up small ones yeah. to get the people yeah. and to get the tech yeah. and then maybe destroy their way of working altogether when you try and like, bring, it <laughs> into the, bring it into the system. Um, but I think that it's about being innovative within your context. And yeah. a lot of that is about just always thinking, where are we creating value? Yeah. Rather than being like, oh, we should do this because it's cool and everybody else yeah. is doing it. Yeah. Um, so I know that really sound like I was bashing small organisations. I really didn't mean that because no, I, I get what you're saying. Some amazing stuff. Context, right? But I think it's it all hard. about it's all about context. Yeah. Um, and large organisations have a lot of challenge and context to to deal with. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that they're not trying to do yeah. some really cool stuff. Yeah. Indeed. Um, a big question. In large organisations, um, we often we often talk about like change and culture change as these macro initiatives, organisation wide, um, often with an expectation of near like conformity to a way, rather than much more micro change within a hundred thousand person organisation in thirty seven countries that in reality is made up of functions and locations and teams and departments and they may have agile structures in one part like technology or product or design or whatever and then they may have sales structures that are just all very different organizations within organizations of that size um we champion quite a lot of like micro change so you can fix something smaller quicker generally if you're in a large organization just be interesting to get your thoughts about culture change if you've seen any examples of large organizations doing it really really well or on the flip side, whether you've seen them doing micro level, smaller changes, 
uh, but being aligned to the bigger picture and direction, but really getting it right and faster by working in smaller chunks. So I think there's not really a right answer, whether it's... No, no, I think just, for some just a view. Yeah, I think for some organisations... So that literally I can remember two conversations I've had recently that are totally different, where one person has said, oh, you know, we've really, really worked hard to get to a point where it is just one people work for our organisation and it is that brand. They no longer talk about, I work for this sub-brand. And and that was kind of the holy grail for them is they wanted to create this kind of one source of the organisation. Whereas another organisation I was talking to is like, oh, there's this bit of our organisation that just has amazing kind of engagement and the culture is so amazing there. And we almost have no idea why, Why? uh, but we don't want to destroy it. (laughs) um, And we kind of want to learn from it. Yeah, but we don't want to stop it doing it because everything is obviously working so well, yeah. Yeah. and people are having like are so productive and really enjoying their work. Yeah, how can we take that and put it somewhere else? Yeah, without inadvertently crushing what makes it great. Yeah, so I think there's like all sorts of yeah, like yeah. Well, it's one organisation work totally different for another one. I think there's kind of I feel like I'm in constant debates. We're hearing people have debates about kind of centralisation versus decentralized more federated organizations and yeah. kind of that challenge between um, having autonomy and empowerment and all of that great stuff but also control and consistency yeah. and whether it is even possible to reconcile the two yeah. in really enormous organizations yeah and i don't i don't know i don't have an answer yeah okay. whether it is my sense is that it would make more sense to do micro experiments because also then your risk factor is is reduced, is, is reduced. Right? Yeah. so obviously yeah. to experiment something on like kind of 50 people yeah. if obviously it's ethical and legal <laughs> is yeah. going to be a lot safer than yeah, doing yeah. it over an enormous organisation and that is definitely something that big organisations could learn from small, small in terms of piloting and iterating yeah. so that would make sense for me but I do think that some big organisations really see the value in trying to get it so consistent and coherent kind of this one source of, of truth yeah. and this is who we are yeah. and that everybody is in line with that yeah um to be fair, actually, that organisation that I was speaking with is just UK-based, so that makes it slightly easier. Yeah. But they're not small. Yeah. You know, they are. They're pretty large. How, how, how do you think organisations balance culture and the consistency with diversity and diversity in the nature of work and the way work gets done? Because our products mm-hmm. and engineering team would work really differently to our growth team, for example. Um, with being an individual and bringing your individual self to work. So yeah. you've got team and group challenge that works very differently. You've got me as an individual that's really different to you as an individual, as the next person, the next person, with then a level of consistency and experience and culture. Yeah. How, how, do, how does that, how do those things even meld together? I think what's really interesting is the idea of, um, I remember reading an article about it the other day, but I also commissioned an article about it years ago, um, about cultural like cultural fit yeah. as a way of ending up with zero diversity, yeah. which I always thought was really... Yeah, yeah, so like when cultural pe- conformity. Yeah, basically. so when people are like, oh, they just don't fit in, to yeah. me that means, oh, they wouldn't, you know, they didn't want to go they for a beer. They haven't adjusted their behaviours yeah, to they, be like Yeah, you. they don't... Uh, I think it can be a little bit cult-like. Yeah. So that kind of, they won't come for beers. Yeah. Because, I don't know, they might have a young family at home or yeah. something like or that. Or they don't drink. Yeah, or they don't drink <laughs> or they just don't want to because yeah. they don't want their work life, they want to keep their work life and their personal separate. life separate. Yeah. And that's a totally individual choice. Yeah. Um, so I think where I think the kind of recruiting for cultural fit yeah. is a little bit dangerous unless we caveat it with loads of yeah. kind of other things or make sure it doesn't just become another way, another kind of um, bias, Yeah. I guess. 
So yeah. I think that's a kind of interesting way of thinking about it. I think it can be used by managers as a little bit of a get out. Get out of jail, yeah. Yeah, and also, why do we always want cultural fit? I mean, yeah. you might be trying to, if you're trying change. to change, yeah, you, you don't want, you don't want cultural fit, you want something different, you want yeah. something that's going to rub up yeah. kind of against it and yeah. maybe create change. You want a lot of people who are going to do that in order yeah. to kind of create that energy. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's a, a point to think on as well. Um, I'm sorry, I've totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> that's right. Don't worry. Don't worry. I've got I've got one last one last question, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, I will try and like, answer it coherently, but I can't promise anything. No, that's all right. You've got a little bit of time because you need to get out your crystal ball from your bag. Oh, I left my bag in the other room. Um, <laughs> and you just need to work through for me what's going to happen to HR for small and large businesses over the next three to five years. Okay. Let me get my ball out. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> Can we leave that in? Because it's funny. Okay, okay finally then. Uh, nobody's going to have got this far. We've been talking a really long time. I know, I know. We'll break it up. It'll be all right. <laughs> if you're still here, well done. This is, this is what you came for. Um, so I, I don't want to split it into large and small. I'm just going to talk generally. Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to see kind of even more changing structures that are enabled by technology. So whether that means totally kind of automating a lot of the administrative yeah. and um, operational stuff. Yeah. Um, it might be automated or it could mean what I'm seeing some people do is move it so it's pooled. So you have operations okay. that are, yeah. so um, your IT, your HR, your finance, yeah. and you don't necessarily have specialists. You mm -hmm. have people who can answer all of those queries yeah. that technology is helping. So you're using chatbots or whatever, or you're outsourcing mm -hmm. some stuff. Um, and then kind of almost uh, separating out potentially of the operational and the strategic. Yeah. Um, I think that means kind of we need to really seriously think about how we move people up the value chain because you, and this is not just true for this profession, it's every profession as you start to automate the jobs that you did when you came in as a junior. Yeah. How do you start? Yeah. Like there is no first job. Yeah. Like the career ladder, if you think of it as a ladder, suddenly it moved like the bottom rung is so high up, you can't yeah. even reach it. Yeah, so yeah. I think we have to do some kind of serious thinking about that. Um, I think to go back to the point I made earlier about empathy, a lot about kind of bringing the human back to to human resources. Yeah. I mean, it's got the yeah. word human in it. Yeah, yeah. So kind of bringing humanity into the workplace, thinking about what those kind of uniquely human skills are and really challenging and enabling and supporting leaders to be human yeah. and to be empathetic. And this discussion that I hosted last week, there was kind of a question like, is there something about our workplaces and our organizations as they're set up right now that squeezes empathy out the more senior that people get? Mm. So how do we kind of get that, keep it? Because yeah. I don't think many people naturally start mm. as non-empathetic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that kind of, that ethical challenger role, so asking difficult questions. So we talked quite a lot earlier about kind of bravery and courage. So I kind of think yeah. that as a key competency um, I think bringing kind of talent in from outside the function. I think probably this is true for all functions. I think if we think about kind of T-shaped people, yeah. I think that breadth is really important. So, do we? You need to have you need to have some kind of technical capability, and you need to have credibility, and you yeah. always need to get the basics right. Otherwise, there's no point kind of trying to be strategic. If yeah. people aren't getting paid on time, yeah. then you have literally no license to start talking about yeah, like your yeah. organisational design. Um, but kind of thinking about broadening our horizons yeah. um, and where we get talent from, um, because I think just having that diversity of experience would be really valuable. Um, and the, I think the big thing for me is about, is about culture and it's about people leaders kind of being 
I don't want to say owners of the culture because I think all of us are owners of the culture and leaders yeah. are owners of the culture, but I guess the person that kind of pushes it and champions it a lot. And I think particularly in listed businesses, I think this kind of link to corporate governance yeah. and the voice stuff there yeah. is just really, yeah, that's really, really exciting. And that is where yeah. a lot of the focus should be, thinking about how do I get into that space? Because I think that is where a lot of the value is going to come. Uh, so time to do wrap you, it up, I guess. I'm quite positive about the future. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Do you think that, and this is the, the very, very last question, do you think uh, the corporate governance code... Um, is for culture what the gender pay gap reporting was around diversity? Yeah, I think it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, obviously cool. it applies to fewer businesses because you don't have to follow it. Not everybody's listed, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's the same it's the same basic principle. It's how do you take a what could be seen as a blunt instrument about ticking yeah. a box and turn that into something transformational yeah, yeah, around yeah. your culture. And I think that's if you have brilliant people leaders that's what they should be seeing this kind of stuff as as an opportunity to really add value because I think it's a super exciting time to be in the profession and a lot of the leaders that I know feel like the going has never been so good it is never you used to have to kind of push yeah. push a lot of stuff through and now people are actively coming to you Doors open, and yeah. saying how do I how do we do this how what are we doing around diversity yeah. it's the moment your chairman is getting a difficult question from an investor on yeah. why are there no women on your board suddenly yeah, yeah do you yeah. know that that pushes the door a lot wider open. Well, that's a great way to end, I reckon. Thank that's you. us done. We're complete. Well, High five. Nice. <laughs>